Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. <clears throat> Those of you that have been with us at all, you know that uh, we have a theme for 2023, and the theme is, why does it matter? And we are spending this entire year exploring the answer to that question. And we are looking at various facets of that question each season of the year. And so now we are here in the summer. We've just begun June. And so for June and July, our theme is going to be eternity. Why does it matter? And I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. You will remember last Sunday we talked about this, and I just want to make sure that you know about it. Um, we want you to get one of these signs, John 3.16. And we want you to take these signs wherever you go this summer, not necessarily on a trip, but here, here in Arlington. And we'd love for you to get photos made with you holding the John 3.16 sign. And if you are on a trip, we'd like for you to do that as well. And then you can upload those um, photos to fbca.org slash John 316. Don't put the colon because that messes up stuff, I think, in the URL. Am I right about that? I'm not a, I'm not a URL person, but I believe that's right. John 316. And also on that landing page, we have some suggestions for you, to, some prompts to help you learn perhaps how to share the gospel a little more effectively because if you'll let maybe somebody else take the photo, they may want to ask you, why are you getting your photo made with John 316? You may think everybody knows John 3.16. Well, I was reading a story a while, uh, a while, it's been a while ago where a pastor was at a uh, professional basketball game in Chicago and he was sitting in what you'd call the end zone, you know, under the goal and he's looking out across the court on the other end of the court. In the other end zone, there was a guy holding a John 3.16 sign. And there were two men, nicely dressed young adults sitting behind him, this pastor and his friend. And these two guys were having a conversation behind the pastor. And one of them said, I wonder what that John 3 colon 1 6 is. The other guy said, I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe it's trying to tell John. Maybe they're in room 316 at a hotel or I don't know. So they were having this conversation. And the pastor finally turned around and said, It's a Bible verse. <laughs> he said, but I'm afraid of my I may have ruined it in the way that I actually said that. So don't, don't do that, okay? We want you to have an opportunity to exercise your apologetics muscles and your evangelistic muscles. And I would tell y'all, when it comes to evangelism, the best evangelist I know, um, and he's my hero, is with me today. My brother Emerson is right here, and his wife, Mary, they are visiting with us today. And so glad to have them. Emerson, um, for many years, was a pastor in Tennessee, in Hawaii, and now he and Mary are in Hampton, South Carolina, and he's the pastor at First Baptist Hampton, South Carolina, and uh, I would tell you, don't get near Emerson if you don't want to get saved, okay? That's how it works. Most of the church family, those of you who've been with us for a while, you know Auburn. Their youngest son, Auburn and Annalise, they were in our church for a while, and uh, they've been in Colorado, and they're now over in Rockwall. But a lot's happened to Auburn and Annalise since they've been with us. They now have Maverick and Xander, so we've got our two little uh, nephews, great-nephews, nephews once removed, grand-nephews, whatever they are. Anyway, um, but we're glad to have Emerson and Mary and Auburn and Annalise and their kids with us today. And I mean that about Emerson. Emerson can share the gospel with anybody. So eternity. We're going to have this conversation about eternity. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to preach in June. 
And then in July, I'll be out of the pulpit. And so Kurt Grice will be preaching, uh, Gary Stidham, Connor Torrealba will be preaching. So I, I, I knew we'd get a shout out for that. And, uh, um, and uh, Katie Hodges is gonna preach and all, absolutely Luke Stair. So all these folks are going to preach. But I'm going to do June, and I'm going to preach a sermon on heaven. I'm going to preach a sermon next Sunday on hell. And, um, you know, we don't talk about hell very much. I started to title the sermon, Heaven Yes, Hell No. But (laughs) I I don't have enough courage to do that, to be honest with you all, so I'm not doing that, okay? That's not the title. That was the working title. Um, But uh, I am going to preach on hell next week heaven the next week because I've, I think we have mistaken notions about both of them. I'm not sure people really know uh, what they believe about hell and I, and I believe their views on hell are tainted. I'd say the very same thing about heaven and I'm gonna preach on John 3.16 as well. But, but what we're gonna do today, you remember last summer, y'all may remember, we used the book of Ecclesiastes to guide us through the summer and uh, we're not going to do that this summer, but we are going to begin the summer in Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to ask you to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes in our daily Bible readings. We already started last Thursday, if you're clued in. And so I'm going to begin with a message from Ecclesiastes today. And here's the, here's the question I want us to ask, answer today. Does anybody really know what time it is? You think about time, time is a fascinating concept if you really Think about it. And we're going to talk today about eternity, and eternity is a subset of time. But think about time. We mark time. We, we make time. We run out of time. Um, we tell time. We waste time. We lose time. We save time. Time is a fascinating concept. And how do you know what time it is? I mean, how do you know what day it is? How do you know what year it is? I mean, if, if, if I were to ask the common person in America, what is today? They would say June 4th, 2023. And I might ask them, how do you know that? Who decided that for you? Well, it turns out there's actually an answer. The reason you and I would say that it's 2023 is because way back in AD 500, Dionysius Exiguus, this medieval monk, was working in Rome. And he was an expert in Greek and Latin. And his first assignment was to translate this massive set of documents from Greek into Latin. But the second task he had was to set the date for Easter for all the years ahead. Well, The challenge that Dionysius Exiguus had, he did translate all these documents, but he had a frustration about dating Easter, and the reason for it was, up until that time, there was a particular method of calculation that the church used to determine Easter, and they used a calculation that was known as the Diocletian method. The Diocletian was a Roman emperor who persecuted Christians. Dionysius didn't think it was appropriate to be using anything named Diocletian to be determining when Easter is for the church. So he came up with a completely different calculation. And as he did that, he went backwards and counted from Easter past. And then he projected Easter forward. 
And as he did that, he said, we need to address our calendar in a way that we honor Easter and that we honor the life of Jesus. So he said, we should refer to this era as Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And anything that happens before that should just be before Christ. And so eventually, his methodology carried the day. The church embraced it, actually authorized it. And before you know it, we actually had a calendar that was marked by time before the birth of Christ. That's known as BC, before Christ. And so if you're writing about something that happened before Christ, you always put the, the notation of the date first, 435 BC. But then AD, in the year of our Lord, then you put the date. So in the year of our Lord, AD 2023. Carried the day. It was an incredible calculation, and it has been highly influential. However, in the modern era, we've recognized that Dionysius Exiguus was working at a disadvantage. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have an iPhone or Wikipedia or all the things that you have. And based upon what we know now, based upon our knowledge about Herod, Pontius Pilate, it turns out that Jesus was actually born, as best we can tell, four years before Christ. Okay? I'm, I'm telling the truth. Um, but we've just decided to just let it go. And so that's what we've done. We've just not addressed it. But just for you to know, if you want to be exact, as best we can tell, that would be true. Reframes the whole conversation about the year 2000 and all that, but nevertheless... But not only the, but, but if you were to ask somebody what year it is, well, it depends on who you ask. You know, if you ask a, folks who live in Israel what year it is, a Jew would tell you this is the year 5,783. If you were to ask a Muslim, a Muslim would tell you this is the year 1,444. They mark their calendar different than we do. And even understanding what time is, you know, if you ask somebody what time is it, it actually depends where you happen to be on planet Earth. Fascinating, isn't it? Do you know? that in America, the Department of Transportation is in charge of the time zones in America. The Department of Transportation. They are the ones that set the time zones because they're in charge of transportation across the country. And so when it comes to airplane schedules, railroad schedules, uh, transporting goods across state lines, the Department of Transportation helps to oversee time zones. Now, time zones were invented by Stanford Fleming. He was a railroad executive in Canada in the 1800s, and here's what he discovered, that the earth rotates an hour at a time every 15 degrees longitudinally. So he proposed that you divide the world into 24 time zones 15 degrees apart longitudinally so that you can mark each hour. And most of the world adopted that. And now the Department of Transportation oversees that. But even with that said, how do you still know what time it actually is? Well, it turns out that in America, the Navy oversees the master clock at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. So now we've gotten to the answer. If you want to know what time it is, the U.S. Navy will tell you what time it is. Based upon 
the Department of Transportation's division of the time zones because the time zones don't all work just 15 degrees apart because sometimes you have crazy state lines that they try to take consider, into the consideration. And then some countries have decided they just don't want those time zones, so China just has one time zone. But the good news is it's a small country, and so it really doesn't make that big a deal. <laughs> doesn't make that big a difference, okay? The point is, how do you know what time it is, and does anybody really know what time it is? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about time. And I, and I want you to look with me at this passage in Ecclesiastes. Um, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, we don't, was it Solomon? We don't know, we think so, but whoever it was. Remember last year I offered you this image. If you can imagine the writer of Ecclesiastes is a tour guide and we're on his bus and he's showing us reality. And so we're on our way and you get to page three and it's almost like he stops and he says, oh yeah, by the way, just need to make sure y'all know this. Your life, there's gonna be good and bad. There's gonna be some really good times and gonna be some really bad times. And you might as well go ahead and just get ready because that's just how it is. He tells us the truth, sometimes unfiltered. So with that said, look at Ecclesiastes 3. That's his perspective, and I think it's a reasonable one. So look at Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God's laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Time. As I said, eternity is a subset of time. So if I were to ask you to define eternity, I wonder how you would do it. You know, I love etymology. I, I, I love to research words. I love vocabulary tests. I think they're awesome. I always liked vocabulary tests when I was in school. And so let's take one real quick. Now, if you got the church app, don't cheat. Some of y'all got the sermon notes on the church app, so y'all cheat, let everybody else play, okay? So let, here's what we're doing at camp. At children's camp, we're doing a vocabulary test every day. Just because that's how I think kids ought to they should just have to be taught. Just like I block all their shots in basketball in the swimming pool. I just think it is what it is. So anyway, <clears throat> you know, uh, my wife kept telling me, quit blocking their shots. I kept saying, that's what's wrong with America. We just let these kids do whatever they want to do, you know? So anyway, it's a whole nother conversation, a whole nother sermon, okay? So we're learning what the word grace means at camp. That's been our journey. So every day we do vocabulary lessons. Do y'all know that every year, our dictionaries add new words. Merriam-Webster, dictionary.com, based upon the vernacular of the American people. So let me give you some of the newest words in the dictionary, in the American dictionary. And let me just see if you know what they mean. Let me start with the first one. 
dumb phone. Anybody want to know and guess what's a dumb phone? What is it? What do you think? First service, somebody said landline. I said, you know, nobody at camp said that. <laughs> Here's what a dumb phone is, at least according to the new definition. It is a cell phone that does not include advanced software features, such as email or internet browser, typically found on smartphones. In other words, a dumb phone is just a phone, actually. So, okay. And you know it's on the rise. You know there were several hundred million of them sold last year. People are starting to buy dumb phones. Kind of interesting. How about this one? Adorkable. <laughs> New word. What do y'all think? Huh? An adorable dork. That's, that's pretty good. Let's, let's see what the real defin is. definition is. Socially awkward or quirky in a way that's endearing. <laughs> I kind of like that word. Okay. Um, next one's a little tricky. Look at this one. Truthiness. What do y'all think that one means? Truthiness. What did you say, Auburn? Partially true. That's, that's pretty good. What do y'all say? You bunch of smart youth. Huh? What you got, you little high school graduates? I mean, we had y'all walk across us the other day. We all been bowing down to you. Show me what you know real quick. Okay, here it is. I'm just teasing y'all. You know I love y'all. Truthiness, a seemingly truthful quality not supported by facts or evidence. In other words, it sounds like it's true, but it's just not really true. Um, okay, two more. How about this one? Phonesia. That is not a country. It is not a country. What'd you say? What, oh, fear of phones? When you, when you lose your phone, what'd you say? When you go to sleep on the phone. That's pretty good. It's wrong, but it's pretty good. Um, here's what it is. The act of dialing a phone number and forgetting who you were calling just as the person answers. <laughs> Phonesia. <laughs> it's never happened to y'all, I know that. And then this may be my favorite one. If you don't, y'all know what this one means? Um, cakeism. Cakeism. What do y'all think? Loving cake, okay. Here's what it actually means. The false belief that one can enjoy the benefits of two choices that are in fact mutually exclusive or have it both ways. In other words, you can't have your and eat it too. That's right, there you go. Look at y'all. You're so much smarter now that you came to church, okay? Um, so with that said, if you look at Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10, it's, or verse 11, he's made everything beautiful in his time. He set eternity in the human heart. So eternity, why does it matter? What, what does it even mean? Do, do you think that people actually believe in eternity in our culture today? Do you think that Christians even believe in eternity? What does it, what does it mean to say that God's put eternity in our hearts? So here's, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to put our, we've warmed up a little bit, so let's put our thinking caps on for just a couple of minutes. Can we do that? And let's have a little theological and philosophical reflection because here's what I think. If you're going to flex your apologetics muscles, if, uh, if you're really going to be able to articulate what you believe in a way that's compelling and appealing, 
Wouldn't you agree that you need to understand your audience? I mean, you, you need to understand who you're talking to. So I want you to think about this society, 21st century America. What do, what do Americans believe and how do they interpret reality? Well, I wanna offer you some vocabulary today that we're going to use for the rest of the summer and I just wanna get it in front of us today, okay? So let's start with the first phrase, imminent frame and transcendence. If you're reading any philosophy right now in apologetics, you're going to run across these phrases. And let's just talk about what they mean. Charles Taylor, he is a, a, a Canadian Roman Catholic philosopher. And he's written a book called The Secular Age. And he has given us this terminology. So Josh Chatra and Mark Allen have written a book called Apologetics at the Cross. Here's their take on Charles Taylor. Let me just read this to you. Charles Taylor uses the term imminent frame to refer to how in the current cultural context, people view everything in terms of a natural rather than a supernatural order. The modern social imagination, which is deeply embedded in much of our culture, works from the assumption that while people can find significance or meaning in life, that's imminence, that's what we see, there's no higher divinely given purpose that has been assigned to them, transcendence. It's Taylor's contention that everybody has a frame of reference. And you use that frame of reference to understand and experience reality. And he says it's his take that in the current American culture, most Americans view the world through an imminent frame only, and they have no idea about transcendence. So let, let, let me make it a little bit simpler. An, an analogy that he and, and, and Chatron Allen uses this one. For most of human history, human beings saw themselves living in a two-story home. The second story is the transcendent floor, if you will. It's ultimate reality. It is, it is what's beyond us. It is what's eternal. And most human beings throughout history, pagan, Jew, or Christian, had the idea that that transcendent reality was involved in everything. And that ultimately you would find yourself in that transcendent reality for eternity. And that it's just as real as what we see, taste, experience on this earth. So that's the second story of the home. The first story of the home is imminent reality. It's, how, it's where we live every day. It's what we see and touch and taste, what we can experience, what we know. And so historically... Taylor, Chatrall, these guys argue that human beings lived in a two-story home acknowledging the reality of both of them. Christians understood the fact that we live on the first floor, but we're going to live forever on the second floor. Does that make sense? He says Americans today live in a one-story home. They no longer believe in a transcendent reality. They no longer accept the fact that there's something other than, something beyond, something even more real most Americans just live in the imminent frame. So in other words, the only thing that matters is what you do here. So if the only thing that matters is what you do here, then you better get everything you can. And if you think about it, if there's no transcendent reality where there's going to be no actual ultimate judgment, then it doesn't really matter how you get it. It's just important that you do what you want to do and you feed whatever you want to feed and Americans 
by and large, live on the first floor without really believing there's anything else that real. Does that make sense? That, that I believe, is on target. I think Taylor is right. Now, with that said, that means that this first floor is incredibly secular. Now, here's the mistake that you make, or, or you can make. You assume that because it's secular, then it has no belief system. And that's just so not true. <laughs> I promise you, the secular age has a belief system. Let me give you this quote from Tim Keller, because the secular age is another vocabulary phrase for us. Let me put this quote for you on the screen, because Keller just died. He's a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Here's what he says. Secularity is not simply an absence of belief. Christians often accept this claim and respond by getting their proofs and other rational bona fides. In other words, acting like we've got to prove that there's a God. Not so fast. Secularism is its own web of beliefs that should be open to examination. In other words, secular people have a deeply held belief system. There are things they are committed to. For example, in America today, people are committed to tolerance. They're committed to individual rights. You know, they're committed, com committed to personal decisions. They're committed to, to a lack of authority. So that leads me to Another phrase, you know, sometimes when, when scholars talk about the era that we're in, some people have said, well, we're in the postmodern era. I've never been comfortable with that because I, I don't think it's true. And a number of philosophers now agree with me on that, and I'm glad. The phrase that we're using now, many people, is late modernism. We haven't escaped modernism yet. So what is late moder modernism? The self is still at the center of our cultural reality. If you're paying attention, right now, the expression of self is all that really matters. The autonomy of the individual, personal freedom, both are core values of our culture. There's a distrust in traditional authority and a belief that expression of personal desires is the right of everyone, regardless. Skepticism concerning absolute truths and a sense of hopelessness um, pervade our culture. In other words, what I'm told by many people in my culture is there is no such thing as absolute truth. And the people that say that believe that is absolutely true. So they tell me that there's no such thing as absolute truth by stating an absolute truth. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> so just the very fact that you would say that lets me know there's hope because you obviously believe in absolute truth. But it's an interesting time. So... Let me go back, are y'all are are still with me? Okay, Let, let's get to the sermon. So we're there, okay, and I'm gonna do it really fast, okay? How are Christians supposed to view time then? So if you were to ask a Christian, what time is it? What is our answer? Now granted, we, could, we can say the elementary things, well, it's 2023 or it's summertime or you know, a certain time of day, whatever you might wanna say, but there's a much deeper question afoot. Do we know what time it is? You know, Jesus had something to say about that. In Matthew 16, let me just read this to you. The Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew 16, 1, came to Jesus and they tested him and asked him, they said, show us a sign from heaven. Pharisees and Sadducees said, you say you're from heaven, prove it. You know what Jesus said, Matthew 16, verse two, when evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky's red. And in the morning, tomorrow it'll be stormy for the sky's red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. What a, what a word from Jesus. Jesus said, 
Right now, the hope of the ages, the messianic fulfillment, the age to come is embodied right here in front of you and you've missed it. Now you can tell the weather. You know when it's gonna rain. You know whether or not a ship ought to sail. And yet here you are, the teachers of Israel, and you don't know what's happening on God's timetable. Shame on you, in other words, is what Jesus says. Well, I think if Jesus looked at us, he might ask us, do y'all know what time it is? Do you have an understanding of the season that we're in? You see, Christians are supposed to be paying attention. That's what I would say. We're supposed to know what time it is. So for example, a lot of us are burdened about our culture. We've been praying for breakthroughs. We've been praying for God to speak, particularly to our young people, people that are trying to figure out how to live this life. And so as we've prayed, and many of us have been asking God, Lord, show us, we've, we've tried this, and this doesn't seem to stem the tide, and what about this? And Lord, is there hope? Can you, can you show us that you're at work? And all of a sudden, earlier this last year, we get a word at at a place like Asbury College in Kentucky, all these students just won't leave. And they just keep praying and they keep worshiping. And all of a sudden, thousands of people are drawn to this renewal, this sense of an awakening. And it was just a reminder. There were many of us who just were stopping and just thanking God to let us know, Lord, this is a season we're in. It's a season where you're going to work and you're going to work in ways we would never imagine. And you're going to speak to those who are willing to listen. That's what the Lord's always done. And so as Christians, we, we need to know what season we're in. So, so let me just give you a, a quick lesson about time, if I can, really quickly for Christians. Here's our perspective. What about history? When Christians look over our shoulders and look behind us, as Christians, we have a providential view of history. We don't believe history is just a series of disconnected events. We don't just chronicle history that way. That's not what Christians believe. Christians believe that God is at work in ages past. We believe that history is in God's hands, that God has worked again and again and again, and God has moved and orchestrated events, and that God is in charge. So the Bible, the Bible teaches us that. The Bible says in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. In other words, when did Jesus come? When the time was just right. What does Ecclesiastes 3 say? God's made everything beautiful in its time. He's made everything appropriate in its time. God is always on time. God's never late. Now, he's not on your timetable. He's on his timetable, and his invitation is for me and you to get on his timetable. Now, I don't always like that. I'll be honest with you. I like my timetable, and I like for God to get in sync. I want him to be in rhythm with me, but guess what? The invitation is for me to get in rhythm with him and to sync my life with his rhythm and accept his timetable. So when it comes to the past, we believe that God has been at work. What about in the present? Well, we live in the reality of both measured time and meaningful time. On the one hand, we live in the era of this time, obviously. We know what time it is, and I can promise you Baptists on Sunday about this time know exactly what time it is, because I know, I know how we are. So we have chronos time, that's measured time. But as Christians, we also know there's a meaningful time at play here. In other words, the difference between chronos and kairos in the New Testament. Kairos is meaningful time. It's about time. It's the right time. It's the right season. You and I are supposed to be paying attention to when God is doing things at just the right time. We want to be in sync with him because that's what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. You know, if you're a farmer, 
There's a certain time that you plant. If you plant at the wrong time, you won't have a harvest. You, you get in rhythm. In other words, time is just a part of your life. One of the scholars I read said, time is like a parent. It just won't stay out of your business. That's how it is. Time just marches on. And you have to reconcile time. Sometimes times are bad. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, look, sometimes it's going to be painful. You need to get rid. Don't, don't be shocked when something bad happens. You may think, God's just singling me out. Well, it could be that there's judgment that comes. But you know, sometimes bad things happen because we live in a broken world and bad things are going to happen. Don't be surprised by it. And, but don't be surprised by the good times. The good times are going to come as well. And so in the present, we mark our time as both meaningful, rich, a season of life, as well as the time that we measure. But what about the future? I would say this about the future as Christians. We embrace the view that not only has the past been in God's hands, but the future's in God's hands. You see, I'm not worried about the future. I'm not. Now, I have my beliefs about the future. I do. I have convictions about what I think is going to happen. I study the scripture. I look for things that indicate that whether or not what I'm teaching is right or not. Of course I do. But you know, whenever God begins to orchestrate things, whenever God brings all this to a consummation, do you think I'm going to argue with God about it? Do you think I'm going to say, no, you know, Lord, actually, I thought you were historically premillennial. That's what I am. I can't believe that you've chosen. What, what are you doing? You know the Bible teaches historical covenant premillennialism. I've been teaching it for about 30 years. Is that what you, I'm going to go, this is awesome. Whatever it is. You know why? Because it's in his hands. The future's in his hands. And what I've learned about God is you can trust him with time. He knows what he's doing. So what do you think's happening right now? You think God's asleep at the wheel? You think God's puzzled up there in heaven? I mean, is that really what you think about? You think God's wondering how the internet works? Do you? You think God's going, man, how's that Apple Watch work? That thing's amazing. You think God is consulting Bill Gates on something? You think God is waiting on somebody to discover whether or not there's life on Mars? I mean, is that really what you think about God? Y'all, come on. He's God. The future is in his hands. I can promise you, he's not asleep with wood. You know what he's doing? He's getting everything ready for whatever it is he wants to do next. That's what he's doing because he's God. Just like he prepared the world for the birth of his son, he's preparing the world for the end because he's God. He's orchestrating events, circumstances. I can promise you he's anything but asleep. He is paying attention. And I guarantee you, whether you know it or not, he's in charge. So now, whoo, good. Here's the real sermon. So I promise this is actually it. It's the last thing. Eternity. This is what we're going to talk about this summer. Here's what you and I do with eternity. We accept the truth that God is eternal and he's designed us for eternity and his eternal purposes are at work right now. That's what eternity is. God himself is eternal. He lives in eternity. God's in time and beyond time. And he has put something in me and you, his image. And we've been created in the image of God. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. He's put eternity in your heart. That means you can have an eternal perspective, but you're designed for eternity. And that means it reframes how you experience life on this earth. So when terrible things happen to you, when you lose something, when, when seasons change, Grief and sadness and pain are all real and we experience them. But we experience them tempered by this view. This world is not all there is. You see, I've got an eternal perspective. There's more to life than what I'm seeing right now. And as hard as this is, as painful as this is, as challenging as this is, this is temporary. 
it also tempers my celebrations. When I see something incredible, something glorious, something I can celebrate, I will do it, but I also know that it's tempered by the fact that it too is temporary until the Lord returns and glory is truly a reality. It's all tempered by my eternal perspective. But I also know this, he's designed me for eternity and his eternal purposes are already at work right now. So here's what you and I are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be aligning our lives with the eternal purposes of God. That's why we're a colony of heaven right now on the outpost of this world. Jesus came and established the kingdom of God. It's already begun. You and I live, what time is it? Well, we're in the present age, but we're also in the age to come. So if you were to ask me, hey, Dennis, what time is it? I'd say, well, it depends on what you mean by that. If you want to know really what time it is, we're in the age to come. You know, the present age is still here, but Jesus established the age to come, and I'm already rehearsing. I'm already getting in sync with the age to come. I'm already getting ready for those eternal purposes. So when I participate in them, I'm actually doing something that Jesus prayed for, for God's will to be done where? On earth, just like it's done where? In heaven. God is saying, I want the first story to start looking like the second story because you're going to live in the second story a lot longer. So we need to go ahead and start getting ready. We should see the eternal purposes of God at work and we join him in them. When we do that, we are participating in eternity already. So that means I don't have to wait until I die to experience eternal life. It's already here. It's, it's real now. So for Christians, eternity matters. It's not just a conversation. It's not an abstract idea. It's our real world. It's our reality. It's our frame of reference because you and I are followers of Jesus and his way. So just introducing this this morning, okay? Can I just say in conclusion, to be continued, okay? All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, your power, your presence, your gifts, for example, giving us the gift of eternity. Thank you for that. And we ask God that uh, we'll be faithful to you as we live on this earth in this present age, God, that we will also be harbingers of, messengers of, participants in the age that is to come. And Lord, as we do that, May it create hunger and thirst in the lives who are around us so that they too might have a desire to know what it is to follow you and be a part of your eternal purposes. May it be so. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.